Welcome to the International Trade Resource Podcast. We are excited to have a guest join us today to talk about export controls. Many companies are surprised to find out that their product or customer can trigger a requirement that they follow regulations on export. So this is an important topic for everyone to understand. Let's get to the podcast and learn from Adriana Giraldo. Hello, everybody. I'd like to uh, welcome you to the International Trade Resources Podcast and really excited today to have as our guest, Adriana Geraldo. She has a lot of experience over the last more than 15 years in import-export coordination, supply chain export operations, customs and foreign trade operations. So I had talked to her about joining with us today and really digging in on export controls. So she's worked in a variety of industries from Toys R Us to David Yearman to BASF. So across many different types of product categories that that may be more or less influenced by U.S. export controls. So to start off with, Adriana, can you tell me what are export controls? Well, thank you, Kimberly, first for having me today on your podcast. I'm very excited to have the opportunity to share some information with you today. Um, Basically, export controls is simply um, just U.S. laws and regulations that um, regulate the export of controlled goods, software, information, and technology. That's basically the simple definition of it. And um, it mainly um, falls under three main categories, Um, the EAR, which is the Export Administration Regulations. Also, part of that is the ITAR, which is the International Traffic Arms um, Regulation. And also, we have the um, Office of of Office and Foreign Access Control, which is called OFAC. So between those three um, agencies, they really monitor and control a lot of our products that are being exported out of the United States. Well, that brings up a question. So who are these agencies? Why are they trying to control certain types of products on export? So for the most part, they fall under the Department of Commerce. And what they do is, so the EAR, Export Administration, writes that division mostly controls the products and technologies. So products like, I don't know, I'll just say like Microsoft software, um, you know, any, any, like on my area, we, we manufacture chemicals. So we want to make sure and ensure that any of our chemicals are not, you know, used, um, in any chemical weapons. Um, you know, the ITAR division, it's mostly strictly mostly for military controls. We want to ensure that none of our military items fall into the wrong hands. And then you have basically also the OFAC division, which, you know, they want to make sure that, you know, they target certain individuals from a financial standpoint and make sure that we're not dealing and doing business with certain individuals specifically. So you have to remember expert controls isn't specifically a product. It's also who you're doing business with as well. Um, Uh Yeah, that can also restrict, you know, your business, your business model, who you're exporting to and, you know, what country you're planning to also do business with, but also the individual as well. So if a certain individual gets embargoed or sanctioned, for example, you can't do business with that person. You have to make sure that that person is not, you know, on an embargo list. That's interesting. And I, you know, it's funny to me how I think there are still companies that don't anticipate that this applies to them. Um, they, they don't see their product as being military 
So what are some examples of that where a company might be surprised to find out that their product is controlled or that that they're in an industry that potentially is dealing with an individual who's who's controlled? Um, so I would say first, the main challenge is like, if you can easily just place an order online and just export it around the world. But I think the challenge in general for exporters is like, how do I become a compliant exporter? How do I become a exporter that, you know, I'm not violating any regulations. So I would think first is make sure you're knowledgeable of what they are. There's plenty of free resources out there that you can look into. Um, BIS offers great seminars, introductions to, you know, what's controlled, who are, you know, where you can find these controlled lists of individuals. But, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, if you export a product and, you know, it can be something as simple as like parts for an airline, you know, you have to make sure that, you know, you're not, that airline is not using it specifically for military use. Um, it can be something as simple as goggles. You're exporting it to a customer overseas, but turns out they're using those goggles for whatever reason into their military. So it's not just who you're exporting to. It's important also that you understand the end use of these products as well. I think that level of detail on customers and distributors and end users can sound really overwhelming for companies. Um But on the other side, if you're not collecting that information or you're not aware of where your products are going, then you can be subject to penalties or problems. So what are, what are some of the, what's some of the recourse that these government agencies have to, to punish you or penalize you or stop you if you do run afoul of one of these regulations? Yeah, so first, um, I just want to say exporting is a privilege that can always be revoked um, from your company. Um, the fines and penalties are very high. You're looking anywhere from minimum to 10000 to up to like 120000 or even more. I've seen companies where they violated export controls and there were being, they were fined over a million dollars as well. Wow. How severe of, you know, how severe your violation is. Um, regarding export. I also would want to say like you wouldn't want the negative press on your company for these type of violations. And it's not just civil penalties, depending on how severe um, the crime is in these situations or the violation, I should say. There's also criminal penalties. There have been people arrested um, for these type of violations as well. So um, it's something that I think everyone should really take seriously you know, don't always assume your product is not subject to it. You know, it's, I think you have to be very conscious and knowledgeable of the export controls, what they are, who are they for, and just have like anyone that's exporting should have some type of compliance program in their company. So you mentioned an organization earlier that would be able to help companies identify. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, yeah, so BIS has a great resource. Um, they have great um, a search engine where you can find certain companies, individuals, um, OFAC as well. You can have plenty of lists out there that, you know, there's plenty of free resources um, online that you can find a lot of these um, information on companies or individuals that you shouldn't be doing business with. I think one, um, one possibility, even more uh, accessible maybe or local, is the in the U.S., in a lot of the SBDC offices, small business development center offices, there are ITAC officials, international trade officials, or U.S. commercial services offices are in, in many countries. 
big cities, they also are there to help you export. And so they can take a look at your product and let you know if they think your product might fall under, you know, under under some type of restriction. And BIS, for anyone in the audience who doesn't know, is the Bureau of Industry and Security, uh, part of the U.S. Department of Commerce. So you can go to their website, which is bis.doc.gov.gov, and you can find information available there about what products are being um, are being controlled um, and and or individuals, you know, through through another agency. So. You know, it's, I, I think it's one of those things that, and one that companies run afoul of in many times unintentionally. And then there are also those instances where the company knows that they're exporting to someone who's, who's going to misuse those goods, but they think they've covered themselves because they're exporting to a importer in Italy who's going to turn around and resell those goods to somebody in Iraq or, you know, Afghanistan or wherever else those goods are going to. And that does not, that does not um, forgive you because as you said earlier, you're responsible for the end user where those, where those products go into the end. Absolutely. I would recommend any exporter always have these four questions in mind. Where is your product being exported to? Um, who's receiving this item and what is the end use of it. And I have documentation um, from these end users or your customer as, you know, document, you know, from a compliance standpoint that you ask these questions, did reasonable care and ensure that, you know, your product did not fall into the wrong hands. So I would absolutely always ask those questions anytime you're exporting a product. And you mentioned earlier having a, a procedure in place. Mm-hmm. You know, can you talk a little bit about what that type of procedure would look like? I would say um, for your products, ensure you have the correct process of how to classify your products, understanding if they're controlled or not, how to classify your products, um, assign an ECCN number. I would say training and development within your team. Um, also, you know, how to properly store and file your, and obtain your end use certificates. Um, obviously, how to do your internal um, audits on a monthly, quarterly basis, however that works for your company. Um, but I would say absolutely have an SOP in place for all the law regulations, um, your internal procedures. And I would say training, training, training is the most important part to have um, within your company. And it's not just have just the compliance department. You also should share that knowledge with your supply chain teams, um, you know, your R&D department, you know, expert controls. Everyone should just have a certain knowledge within your um, organization about what it is and how it can impact the company. It sounds more challenging that I think many companies realize, you know, that it's not just someone checking a box. And when they're looking up these regulations, you're fun- fundamentally using your HS code, correct? HS Schedule no. B or... It's, it could be the Schedule B, but um, when it comes to, like, for example, if you're trying to determine an export license, it's not always just strictly the Schedule B. It's also, you know... Where does that product fall into your ECCN classification? Your ECCN classification is slightly different than your HTS code. And also based on that, so is your product regulated? That's the first thing you have to understand. Then you have to understand how to look up on the country. Um, then you have to understand like the country list. Like if you're shipping to a certain country where that product is determined controlled, is that country then restricted? So it becomes very complex. Then that's why I'm saying that it's important to understand, is your product regulated or not? 
if it is what country you should think to, because based on that, you might or may not require an export license. And where would you find where would you find a way to search under about your product? The BIS website has the regs, so you can look on your, by your categories, okay. um, look at your product. Um, you know, for example, on my side on chemicals, for the most part, um, we can look by um, our CAS number, and you know, it can tell us whether our chemicals are regulated or not. Um, and first, then that will help you determine the ECCN. And then after that, based on your country, then you can determine whether you need an export license or not. There's a whole country list on BIS as to what countries require export licenses or not, depending on the products. So a multi-step process. Oh, absolutely. To really get to that answer. And then you've mentioned a few times export license. So can you clarify for listeners, you know, does everyone need an export license? Do you need an export license when you're dealing with certain regulated products? What does it take to get an export license? No, no. so an export license, you know, I like even I have products sometimes in my company where, you know, it's not, you know, it's an ER 99, but because of the way they're using the product, it turns out to be that we will use, um, we will require an export license. An export license doesn't necessarily mean your product is controlled or it falls in the country control list. It can also be because of the way they're using it as well. So, you know, don't only, um, and it's a very lengthy process, you know, usually to obtain an export license can be anywhere from three to six weeks. You know, depends on the final decision from BIS that you receive. Um, but it, it it really depends on, you know, who you're shipping to, how you're going to use that product, and you know, also the type of product that you're, you know, you're exporting. It can be mer- it can be various reasons why you would need an export license. And that export license is specific to an order and a customer. Correct. So if you have an order and a customer and you have an export license, that's not a one and done. And you can reuse that for other products or other customers in the future. Um, It would be specific to that customer and product. And normally you can, if you're exporting that same product, you can usually use that license for, you know, for a certain quantity. So it depends. Usually it's based off the quantity or um, the length of the license. It's something you have to monitor as well. It's not just I issue an export license and that's it. There's an expiration date on them. So in terms of obtaining a license, um, what are what are the five steps or 10 steps? And can your company do it? Is it better to retain someone else? If you have the knowledgeable staff in-house to do it, you can, yeah, you can absolutely do it. Um, if you don't feel comfortable doing it, I would absolutely recommend you go to um, a consultant or a firm that actually has experience in that. But for the most part, I mean, you know, you just need, you know, for sure, um, your invoice, your order confirmation, um, the end use letter completed from your customer, where this product is going, how they're using it. And then you need to have an established um, BIS Snapper account. And you file the application online, and then you just have to basically, cons- you know, constantly monitor the response, which you should get within three weeks, usually depending on the product. Thank you. I, w- I would imagine that there is a control mechanism in place that the customs and the government is watching uh, shipments that are leaving the country, U.S. country, that are going to specific either countries or individuals or they have particular product codes that those U.S. companies should have applied for, you know, an export license for. So can you talk to that a little bit? What is that 
oversight look like and and how is it being monitored? And not that I'm encouraging anyone (laughs) to try to cut corners in any way. It's just interesting to understand. And, and, you know, obviously we want these controls in place because we don't want these goods to end up in, in someone's hands where they can be used, you know, for building a bomb or for, you know, any kind of war, you know, anything like that. So, so what is, how does that monitoring system work or what do you understand about that? I would say that one of the first things I would, that, from my understanding, from my experience in talking with industry experts, you know, this is why, you know, AES was developed. You know, um, it's right now it's, you know, electronically mostly for, so they basically model a lot of what products that are being exported out of the U.S. And um, from my experience, I've had like a few shipments held by U.S. Customs just because they want to verify <laughs> what we're exporting. But yeah, no, I mean, once you, once you get your export license, um, you basically file your AES and on the AES, you're actually required to put in your export license information. It's not that you just get your, your export license and you're good to go. You also have a mandatory requirement to enter that information in your filing. But after talking with a lot of, you know, industry experts, I would say, you know, they, they are controlling stuff that are leaving the U.S., they have, you know, enforcement is done. It's not just done by BS. It's also done by U.S. Customs. They coordinate um, that enforcement. So, you know, they are checking. I mean, obviously not as much as the imports, but, you know, I would say definitely, you know, be very careful. Don't ever assume that, you know, you you won't be tracked or won't be watched. Like, be very careful because there are ways and that they resources that they have to monitor exports. Interesting. You mentioned AES. And for some of the companies out there that have relied on their freight forwarder or their courier or someone else to, to, to fill in any paperwork, customs, you know, export documentation paperwork, they may not be all that familiar with the AES system. So could you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, so AES is basically, for the most part, any order over 2,500 requires an AES filing. And um, I would say to take it very seriously because the penalties for incorrect information on those export declarations are, you know, they can go minimum 10,000 all the way up to 50,000 or more. And you have to be very careful with them because it's not just, oh, it's just information for the census. Yes, that's part of it. But you have to be also conscious that that information is visible to U.S. Customs at the port. So if you put the wrong vessel, wrong um, port of export, any misinformation you're declaring in that um, AES, it is subject to penalties as well as an exporter. So be very careful as well. And if you're not filing it yourself, Make sure you have an SOP or compliance program where you actually are checking and auditing your freight forwarders and ensuring that they are submitting information on your behalf correctly. Because at the end of the day, you're still responsible for it. You're still responsible for that information, correct? Which, you know, people try to try to avoid (laughs) that responsibility. Um, And on the BIS website, there's a lot of information. There's um, a tab for new to exporting with information about how the system went, you know, works and what your obligations are and what you should do. There's, um, there's a link for classifying items to understand how they're classified. You just mentioned a little over $2,000 export value. I think that would be very surprising 
to many companies who, and I even find a lot of small, mid-sized companies in the U.S., they don't think they're an exporter or they don't think they're an importer because those are things big companies do, right? Big companies import by container or big companies export, you know, to a Fortune 500 company. I'm just shipping 10 cartons of, you know, um, of masks that I bought at Home Depot to filter gases to some guy in Mali. You know, I'm not an exporter, but it's a $5,000 invoice (laughs) and you are an exporter and all of these rules apply to you. So I find there's a big disconnect with people in that too. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example, Kimberly. I think that, you know, you should really look at, you know, these resources that we can definitely share with you. And um, I think anyone, even as small as a small, you know, $5,000 order should take this up seriously. Just at least for the most part, understand the regs, the requirements, and just, you know, take, there's a lot of free resources online. I think what I've heard, a lot of issues like, oh, those trainings could be so expensive. There's a lot of free resources available out there, especially directly from BIS. So I would say at least start there, put together a quick SOP for your company, um, you know, understand the requirements and just make sure that, you know, God forbid someone knocks on your door one day, you're prepared and say, oh, you know, I did, you know, I did do something on this. I did. And if they made a mistake, at least you can demonstrate that you tried um, showing some type of reasonable care when it comes to your exports. Yeah, I find that to be something I've explained to clients many times over the years. There's a difference between, you know, there's a difference in how you're penalized and whether or not you're charged between I genuinely had no idea this was required and I knew, but I chose not to follow it or I chose to believe that it didn't apply to me. Even though I was aware, I I utilized, you know, unreliable information to justify that this doesn't apply to me. So, you know, it's I joke it's the difference between tax planning and tax fraud, right? Exactly. So, so you, you, you're maybe you're genuinely going around about your business and don't appreciate that that this product could be reused in a way that you'd never intended is very different from seeing a niche opportunity where people in certain countries are really trying to get a hold of American products that that they're willing to pay two or three times the retail if you're if you're willing to go buy them at Home Depot or Lowe's or some safety shop. And ship it to them. That that should be enough for you to think about. This isn't a good idea. Like, why are they willing to pay two or three times the retail price, and they want me to go to five different shops? I mean, that's 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 clearly something else is going on here. And and it's not enough for you to say that you didn't know or didn't realize. Exactly. Exactly. And I would say, you know, if you were to get a penalty, you know, having those SOPs, having those. Um, resources at work showing that you at least tried, you know, to learn about the requirements would really help you kind of um, reduce those penalties if possible. Yes. And I'm, I'm, I'm a huge, huge proponent of, of policies and procedures and standards and documenting, you know, that you've checked something or reviewed it. So I agree a hundred percent. And it forces discipline in the company. So that as your company grows, if you have a larger size company or you've outsourced, you know, the fulfillment of your product, 
if you don't have these kinds of systems in place, other people could be making those decisions on your behalf and you genuinely don't realize it, but that doesn't excuse you either. Correct. Absolutely. So you need to have that. Now there's some exclusions, correct? Um, The fundamental research exclusion is one that I've heard of. Yeah, so you'll you'll find this a lot at um, higher institutions that are located in the U.S. Um, it's basically an exclusion mainly for just research that is conducted um, for any publications, but you know they can't have any um, sponsors or have the ability to people restrict them on their research. So I would say that. Um, Research must be conducted for free without any um, publication restrictions. It's usually what you'll find that at um, you know at, you know these larger accredited universities. So, so kind what of- are what are some examples of? Because I'm actually thinking of a client years ago that um, had a laser system that was often used in making high precision parts. It was hardened. It would harden the part. And one of their, some of their biggest customers were foreign uh, universities. And in many cases in China or the Middle East, is that something that they should have had? I'm not saying they didn't, but something that they should have had checked. Cause even though it was for a university, that's, they need to follow up and make, make it, make it more document better how the university is using that tool. Um, so just to clarify, um, this is strictly only for research that will be probably um, published within the scientific community. If they're developing any product based off that research, then that doesn't mean it's excluded from the expert controls. It's strictly the research. And I think that's where it's it's also difficult is because the university can say, we're doing research on this, but then they can commercialize exactly. the, the technology or the product after they have the equipment. Exactly. So if that's the case, then I would say no, they are subject to the export controls, um, you know, unless it's strictly for research. Um, so fundamentally, the American company needs to have a very high bar before they sell this equipment, even to a research university, because there's a, a decent chance of it being misused. It could be. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I can say like majority of the major universities luckily do have that I've seen have an expert control program. They have policies and procedures. You can actually, a lot of these major universities, they actually have a whole website on that topic specifically. If, you want to if it's a university doing the export, I know some private companies that have exported, you know, technology mm-hmm. to universities for research. So it's very, very interesting. So for our listeners um, who we have now alarmed and and made them concerned when they had not been concerned before, maybe, uh, you mentioned the BIS website. Uh, what if they had to have a checklist of how they could educate themselves on this and what steps they should take? What would you suggest be in that checklist? I would say... If- you're just starting to learn about X controls. I would say first start with the BIS website. There's plenty, plenty of free resources. 
Um, they have a great class that they hold, I think, every other month or two. Um, it's called Complying with U.S. Export Controls. I highly recommend if you can go in person or if not, I think those classes are now available online. Um, they, they hold them live. You can ask questions. Um, what I love about these events is that you make great connections. So you have people that have similar business to you or may not, but you know, you at least have a good contact that you can make at BIS. You can ask questions directly. Um, I would say the U.S. the U.S. Census Bureau also has some great resources and training as well. If you want to learn about the um, AES piece, um, there's some great industry associations. Um, there's locally, regionally, um, nationally. So um, one of my favorite is Women of International Trade. They offer great seminars every, um, at least every other month. You know, in every region. Um, and ICPA is another great resource. It's the International Compliance Association. Um, I believe the first year, um, is free. And then after that, you pay a hundred dollars, but a lot of resources you can find as well, not just for exports, but also import as well. And, um, yeah, I can definitely also share any additional, um, knowledge or information from my end and you can, you know, share it with the users as well. Thank you. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, um, it's important to take this seriously as a awareness that however you've considered, you know, your product and export in the past, that you have a responsibility and an obligation to manage your exports according to, you know, U.S. government regulations around exports. And with what's going on in the world, you know, in the last year or two with, the war, you know, in Russia and Ukraine, uh, what's happening in Russia in general, challenges in China, their, you know, situation in the Philippines, we're seeing, I'm reading about, I don't have personal knowledge of equipment that has been potentially sold to the Philippines or some other country that's now making its way to Russia, you know, or India or whatever. And they're, they're just, they're discovering that equipment. And again, equipment can include headsets and goggles and uh, wireless transmitters mm -hmm. and a lot of other things that you may be selling in a retail commercial business, not expecting that that product in any way could be used for any type of military or controlled activity. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, actually, you one of those examples you just mentioned is actually um, BIS has this magazine called Don't Let This Happen to You. And they have a whole magazine which has a whole different type of examples of people who thought were innocently just shipping to, you know, certain products. And then it turns out they were actually controlled by BIS. So I would highly recommend also anyone to read that um, magazine. And we can link it um, in your resource page um, when you get a chance. Okay, great. Yeah, that would be great. So listeners uh, would love again to thank Adriana Geraldo for being with us today um, and sharing her information. Um, I hope all of you make some notes and go back to your organization and, and assign to someone that your product needs to be researched, you know, and, and, and if you don't have a lot of resources, Again, you can reach out to U.S. Commercial Services, to your local SBDC ITAC office, you know, to you can do a quick search on BIS. 
And these organizations will help you for free, typically, and help you make sure you're compliant. So, so not having the money or resources to devote to this is not an excuse. Uh, there are ways to, to identify if the products or the customers or the countries that you're dealing with are included in these restrictions. And then there are people that are there to help you create the system that you need to have in place to make sure that you're compliant. So thank you again so much. Always lovely to talk to you. And listeners, we look forward to having you on our next episode. Thanks for joining us today. This was an interesting conversation and an opportunity to understand how a company can research and understand what they need to do to avoid penalties on their exports. Shout out to our sponsor, Modify. Check out their website for information on trade financing at www.modifi.com. And you can find more episode links on our website, www.intltraderesources.com.